Hi, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected throughout the lockdown and beyond. Now, thank you so much for all your lovely messages about the various guests that we've had over the last few weeks. And the next one, I'm sure, will please you greatly because he is the oldest living world champion in Formula One. I can almost hear your brains whirring, trying to work out who it is. It is, of course, Sir Jackie Stewart. And it's just lovely to have had the opportunity to have a decent chat with him because we're always rushed whenever we meet up at race circuits, five minute interview here or there. But this is a good hours chat where we talk about his childhood, the early days of racing, uh, the glory days, his wonderful memories of places like Monaco. And right the way through to today and all his priorities now, which is mainly raising money and awareness for the charity that he set up, Race Against Dementia, for his lovely wife, Helen. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the world according to Sir Jackie Stewart on In The Pink. Well, Sir Jackie, it is great to see you. You're looking in fine fettle. I gather you had an operation, though. How's your right foot? Well, it's sensitive, put it that way. Um, My right foot did a lot of work in its day. you know, when men were men, we had to wear, you know, very light shoes. Um, and then they had two pedals for the right foot and only one pedal for the left foot. So the left foot's in great shape. <laughs> the right foot's been abused. Um, and it's amazing, you know. If you look at my hands here, you see that's the big toe, don't you? Let's assume these are the other four. The doctor cut them all in two pieces. Oh, and then put them all together in the right place. And that was three weeks and two days. And they say it's going to take seven days before I can kind of walk properly. So no Formula One has been very good timing. <laughs> oh, that sounds painful. Well, it is painful. It's, it's, it's the most painful thing I've had ever. Because, of course, your weight's all on your foot. So anyway, that's... Uh, you don't really I'm, I'm, I'm a married man, I'm used to pain. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I'm a married man, I'm used to Helen doing all the work. <laughs> well, that's true too. <laughs> and how are the family? How is everybody? Well, uh, children are very well. When I say children, Paul and Mark, uh, and we have nine grandchildren and a nice balance between boys and girls, which is sweet. Uh, eight boys, one girl. <laughs> oh, we thing. Bless her. Yeah, yeah. Not spoiled at all. Um, <laughs> so they're good. I've got one in two days' time. We will be 21. I've, we've got three or four, actually. We've got one is 24 and, and one's 23 and one. Anyway, they're all in great shape. They're all in Switzerland. And I just came back for a few days um, and going back to Switzerland tomorrow. Great stuff. And how is Lady Helen's health? Well, Helen is, you know, dementia is a terrible illness, a terrible illness. She, when I speak to her, as I do twice a day, wherever I am in the world, this morning I called her and she had no idea where I was. And when I told her I'm at Clayton House, uh, where's Clayton House? And I said, well, it's the, our home in England. And she couldn't 
work that one out. Now, she was there two weeks ago for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, she doesn't know. And in fact, she's not quite sure where she is in Switzerland. However, for example, if you met up with Helen and you started to have a conversation, you would say, wow, Helen was terrific. Because you'd be speaking mostly about the past and mostly about racing or, you know, the two of us. Um, but, you know, it's now the biggest killer in the world. More people die with dementia than any other illness. It costs more to keep a patient with dementia than the combined total of cancer and heart disease. Mm-hmm. So we've got to do something about it. And this little badge here is a broken D. Martin Sorrell's team created it for me. Um, so Race Against Dementia is a charity. And we're trying to raise as much money. We're, we're buying brand new PhDs. Young, and, and quite a few of them are women, by the way. Very clever. We've got a Chinese one, we've got a Scottish one, we've got a Dutch one, we've got one from Florida and so forth. And we put them into the best institutions in the world to try and accelerate. I'm trying to model it on Formula One. You know how, you know, as well as I do, that problem solving in Formula One is faster than any other business. So I want, and by the way, when I go into laboratories, there's not the same buzz going on. There's not the same... I don't know, passion, maybe the wrong word. But anyway, we're trying to change a little bit of the culture because for 30 years, billions have been spent without any success. There is no cure and there's no preventive medicine for dementia. So Helen is doing well with it. She would love to have been speaking to you just now and uh, all of that sort of stuff. But it's, it's a big burden and we're lucky that I can afford it all. We've got seven neurosurgeon, neuro, um, neuro nurses, and there's two at a time because they have to care for Helen 24 hours a day. Uh, it's a it, big job. It sounds like, in typical fashion, given just how proactive you are, how motivated you are, have been throughout your whole life, that you're really kind of throwing everything at this. I know you're fundraising every year at, Wood, at the Monaco Grand Prix, which would have obviously been this weekend. But what about the personal toll it takes on you? Because there's only so much you can control. She's your best friend. She's been by your side all these years. She came with you to every race. Do do you feel like you're losing her as a person or do you still have that connection? No, not at all. I mean, very much that connection. I mean, it's the first thing I do in the morning when I get up to go and see her. and, and, uh, And it's the last thing I do at night to go and see her and during the day when we're at home together she's always she sits in the same place in the sofa she reads a lot reads the newspapers every day i mean it might even be that you wouldn't notice it because she'd be up for it if we if you came over to her place for lunch or something she would like that and she would have a conversation Uh, and you would say well you know that's terrific but there's another side of it that people with families who have got dementia or Alzheimer's um, know that it's a big challenge. Mm. But she's doing well with it. And, and of course, we're very lucky that she's living comfortably. And 
she gets lots of friends. Nina Rint, for example, Jochen Rint's widow, came the other night. We had dinner with her on Sunday night. And uh, she's got lots of, we have good times. Um, and uh, I take her on a holiday, usually in the Queen Mary, uh, because it, it's good for getting around in a wheelchair, because Helen can hardly walk now. Um, and, you know, the accommodation is very nice. And it's got to have accommodating rooms for the nurses. And, and, there's, and in cruise liners, there's very few, or ships in the case of the Queen Mary, uh, there's very few of the accommodations are connecting, only the very expensive ones. <laughs> anyway. You've got to sell out for it. We're having a fine time. She is worth every penny. Um, it's interesting because when I've been looking back at your life and every time I've seen you and your boys and Helen at a racetrack, family does seem so important to you. What do you think it gave you in terms of your racing career, it gave you confidence as a person to, to have her and then latterly with your career, your sons by your side? Um, well, we're very lucky. We've got a fantastic family. And the sport was particularly good to me. And I survived it at a time when all our friends died. I mean, Helen counted up once. There was 57 people who we knew well enough that came to stay with us, holidayed with us, raced with us, obviously, and traveled with us many times. Um, and I came out of it without drawing blood from my body. Um, so it was a, a, it was a, a rocky road in one respect, but then it was... Tremendously exciting, colourful, glamorous for both Helen and I, because in those days, the wives um, did all the timekeeping for the team because it wasn't all electronic. So Helen did the lap charting and the timekeeping, along with, for example, with Francois Sever. Well, he had so many girlfriends, some of them weren't experienced enough with the timekeeping, I mean. Uh, <laughs> To, 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 to be regulars, but he never really had too many regulars. So but he, his girlfriends or whatever would be with Helen on the pit wall. And she could take oh, 26, 28 in those days, times every lap, every car, and do a lap chart at the same time. So they went, whether it was Betty Hill or whether it was Jim Clark's girlfriend or whether it was you know, John Surtees, his wife at that time, all of the wives had something to do. So Helen lived the life with me in the large majority of cases. So, uh, you know, we've had an unusual life in, in that respect. Uh, and of course, for me, Helen was much more at home than I was. So she was much more looking after our family, two boys, Paul and Mark, and they've grown up to be terrific. And that's down to Helen, I tell everybody, not me. But um, because there were so many things going on and, you know, racing drivers today only do 20 Grand Prix a year or 22 or whatever it might be. I was doing 86 races a year in something like 50 odd different racing cars. Sports cars, GT cars, touring cars, Indy cars, Can-Am cars, whatever. Um, and I was traveling one year, I, I mean, back and forth to America. It was just crazy. I did, I did 87 crossings of the Atlantic one year, at uh, 27 of them in Concord, even after I was retired from racing, because I was doing, you know, Ford, Goodyear, Rolex, um, uh, ABC's Wide World of Sports. 
I was doing what you do uh, with commentary and Grand Prix stuff as well as the Highland Games as well as all sorts of other sports that ABC were leaders of the world at that time. So all of these things, Helen was at home a lot of that time looking after the, the boys and of course we're very lucky we've got such a good tight family now and the same applies to our grandchildren. We've got nine grandchildren now. Pretty good. Let's cast your mind back to your childhood because I'm interested to know what makes you, what's part of your DNA, what motivates you. You, you, you grew up in a very rural area um, and you, your father ran a garage, is that right? Yeah, Dad, um, my father was the son of a gamekeeper. Um, that maybe was what drew, drew me to shooting to begin with. My mother's parents were farmers up in Scotland, both of them. And my father was Lord Weir, owned the estate that my grandfather was the head gamekeeper on. Uh, he got a job with Lord Weir and then got fed up being in an office and, uh, and started a wee garage in Dumbarton in Scotland, a good corner with a lot of traffic and so forth. So I had good foresight from that. But it was never a big garage. It was like six employees. And I was... You know, I went to school in Dumbarton. My brother was a racing driver and a good one for the Curia Cos sports cars. He drove for the Works Jaguar team and the Works Aston Martin team at one point. And I used to go around with him when I was like 12 or 14 years of age. I've got all the autographs today of Fangio and Mike Hawthorne, of course, Sterling Moss and Ascari and Taruthi and Villaresi and all of them. Uh, so anyway... I was a disaster at school. I left school at 14 with no education. I'm, a, I'm a, an extreme dyslexic. I can't read or write. I can't use an iPad right now. What I'm talking to you on, my private secretary set it all up. I would not, I can't find my name on a keyboard. So I'm a pretty dumb guy when it comes to all of that. But I the, think the, you're anything but dumb. Anything but dumb. But I, I want to know what impact dyslexia had on you back then because to tell a child that, you know, looking back then, very little was known about dyslexia and it would actually chip. No, no, I, I don't think it was at all known. You know, for example, my teacher, 53 people in a primary school when I was trying to pass my 11 plus, she would get me up in front of the class and she would ask me to read something from an essay. And I, she knew it before I got up there that I couldn't do that. So you, they sniver at you, they laugh, they sneeze, they cough. And it's a very bad thing. And the dyslexia was a real, I mean, the worst thing that happened in my life, if you like. Uh, and I had therefore no education. So I left school at 15 years of age. I did go to night school to get a, uh, uh, garage mechanics, uh, you know, uh, authority. Um, and that was bad enough, but that was good because you were using your hands as well as your so-called brain. But no, my, my, my early life wasn't good, but my, my shooting came up. My father and mother were great parents. We had a bungalow that my, my mother's parents gave us their wedding present because they were good they were good farmers uh, and any case I'm sorry for the extra noise at the moment it's, it's one of our, I think it's a, 
Rashkata. Um, so, we, you know, my shooting taught me a lot uh, because I shot for Scotland and, and Great Britain and so I went right around the world with that until I was 23. And then Because you got Helen, into the car relatively late, didn't you? Into, you know, by today's standards. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, no, because there was no karting in those days. Yeah. There was no Formula Ford in those days. I mean, we picked up David Coulthard as for Paul Stewart Racing and then later Stuart Grand Prix, all these other drivers. They were all carters like Lewis Hamilton is today. He was a carter. And every driver on the grid today came from karting from the age of, eight years of age. I didn't drive a car, obviously, until I was 17. Uh, and there was no racing at that time of another of any category. So it's a totally different sport in that respect. But it's the, it's the same but different because it's still colourful, glamorous, exciting, and the sort of places I ended up by going to and the connections I made and the commercial relationships that were created was just fantastic, um, particularly for somebody who couldn't read or write. <laughs> I mean, it, it is astonishing because I suppose confidence, a level of calm confidence can take you anywhere in life, no matter what direction you, you go in. And if you have that battered out of you at such a young age, you know, it can have really difficult consequences for you later in life. Well, you know, no, but when, you when you find... bolstered that. Yeah, but when you find you're good at something, I mean, there's so many very successful people with dyslexia, for example, Muhammad Ali, a hell of a lot of sports people are dyslexic. Mm. I mean, that's what saved their life, saved my life, my shooting actually, saved my life before motor racing arrived. So when we're good at something, boy, do we give it the full Monty because we're frightened that we're going to fail again. So uh, that's why there are so many people with dyslexia who are top sports people, athletes from track and field to golfers to cricketers to everybody. I mean, a lot of them are dyslexic and they try harder because they failed to be as clever, so-called, at school as the other folk. So in my case, when I found shooting, oh my God, it was fantastic. I won trophies shooting, and and I was at the, I was at the back of the class because that's where you went when you were a dummy, uh, and I came out of that into suddenly bang bang winning, and the motor racing, and, and because you're so eager to succeed or win, you put much more into it than most people. Somebody academically clever. You know, they've just been so easy in their life. They d Most of them don't work as hard. That's why so many of the really top sports people are dyslexic. Because they absolutely, you know, they're desperately keen not to fail again. And I guess there isn't a plan B necessarily. Because if they weren't academic at school, yet you throw your eggs into one basket, you have to make it work. Your back's against the wall, isn't it? No, I'm, I'm president of Dyslexia Scotland. I started that up more or less. And, you know, we're now in Scotland. I've got better dealing with it than anybody else. Every teacher training college in Scotland now, every teacher has to be 
coached on what is a learning disability. How do you recognize it and how do you deal with it? Because Miss Shaw never found that out dealing with me. That was my school teacher, primary school teacher. So now that's great, but to follow up what you said, if you can't read or write, you can't fill in a job application form. Yeah. I couldn't fill in, I could not fill in a driver application form. Now, if you can't do that, you don't get a job. Mm. So you're getting paid by the country. That doesn't pay as much as crime. Uh, there's probably 75% of every institution of crime are people with dyslexic problems. If you can't get a job, crime pays better than unemployment. And racing cars pays better than all of the above. So just tell us <laughs> about that. Tell that was easy, though. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think it was. Um, you, you clearly unearthed a talent that you had, but as you say, you were shooting and then you, you went into racing. Uh, of the ripe old age of 23. So how did you make that transition? Oh, by the way, before I go on to that, I find it really interesting that you remember your primary school teacher's name. <laughs> how could I forget it? Exactly. Such an impact. Doesn't that just going to show the responsibility that we have in protecting children at such a young age? Because you, it, it was, it's kind of scolded onto your soul. Okay, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last. And that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice, it may just help. Okay, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them with both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard. But there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath, all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family, as better mothers, better partners, more productive, if we have taken a bit of time out. Cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to your new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence, if indeed it exists at any point during your day. It can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, 
do more, be more with bows. Let's, um, yeah, let's talk about that transition then. You, you see, you were shooting at a very high level and now you find yourself racing cars. How, how did that happen? I was a mechanic in the garage. I had gone to my city and guild certificate in Glasgow uh, uh, and passed my test there. And there was a very rich young man in Glasgow whose family, not unusual by the way, there was a single boy and only family, only child in the family. And he was, was a very rich family. And the trustees would not allow him to drive. He had very nice, expensive cars, but he wasn't allowed to race. He could drive, but wouldn't allow to race. Our garage, because my brother's success as a racing driver, was quite well known, and I was the mechanic in the garage. And he brought his cars down, and I prepared them for other people to drive the cars. And one time, one of the boys bent his car a bit and I had to repair it and as a reward he said why don't you do a wee event well it was a sprint somewhere called Heathfield in Ayrshire near Turnbury and Presswick and I didn't win the race but I was I was second uh, and he said oh you better have another go and I won the next race but then I couldn't afford it was costing and and, and I was Married, and I had had her, you know, Paul at that time. And I, I turned the rest of the drives down because I thought it was too dangerous. And I can't, I couldn't afford, it cost £50 a day for the insurance. And I didn't have £50. I mean, I didn't have £50 uh, in the bank or anywhere else for that matter. And he said, oh, well, look, I'll, I'll do the insurance if you'll drive the car. And of course, a courier cost then saw me because I was only racing in Scotland to begin with, really. And then they picked me up. And of course, I went down south, Goodwoods, Netherton, Silverstone, you know, there's Ruxton everywhere with a courier cost driving sports cars. And I was winning a lot. And then Ken Tittle spotted me. And uh, actually, I think it was the manager of the Goodwood test uh, racetrack who said to Ken, if you're looking for a new driver, you should look after this, look at this guy, because he just got the lap break in the sports cars in Goodwood. For a Curia course it was, and a, a Cooper Monocle. And uh, he picked me up, I went down to Goodwood, did the test, got the drive. My first drive was Snetterton, and I won it in the rain by a big margin so we said oh that's it's great and that's what started it and so how old were you then uh, i was 23 when i got married um uh i went with ken in 64 1964 so i was born in 39 you you work that out i'm the dyslexic <laughs> doesn't mean bad <laughs> at maths as well come on uh, so 25 so um um, do you know you, you know that race that you said that you came second in Scotland? You do know that the winner has been bragging ever since that he beat a three-time world champion. Absolutely. And he had every right to. <laughs> He's a lovely man. He's a farmer in the north of England in, in Newcastle somewhere. Amazing. Um, why do you think it is 
that there is such a rich history of motorsport in Scotland. You've produced some great drivers through the decades. We have an inferiority complex against you English folk, <laughs> and we try harder. <laughs> the roads are narrow and twisty and turny and ups and downs, and the borders of Scotland where Jim Clark started was that kind of road, and where I drove all the cars from the garage and everything like that were all twisty, difficult roads. And I think that had a lot to do with it, really. And I think the other thing is that we're such a small country. And I think, still think we've got an inferiority complex in the country because we, when I went down south to drive, everybody was so well-dressed and the cars were immaculate and they had a mechanic and they were... The whole thing, they just had money, and we had no money. So therefore, you think, Jesus, I'm going to have to, you know, how do I, I've got to win. So we won. And when you did that, it was, and I think that's the Scottish thing. I think it's a very Scottish thing. I think we have an inferiority complex, and, and we therefore try harder. Think of all the great bankers. So William Purvis, one of the greatest bankers in the world, chairman of HSBC that was really developed by him and its biggest uh, all sorts of people the man who created the American Navy was Scottish um, the man who created television was Scottish there's a whole bunch of Scottish people I think they try harder because they're in the back the back room sort of thing and therefore when they go down south they've got a prove themselves because they don't want to go back with their, you know, hands behind their back. And I know I felt like that. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. Um, another bit of interesting psychology, I think, with you is this juxtaposition between someone who, who cares about safety and somebody who is a racing driver. And, you know, there's the often simplistic assumption that racing drivers are brash and a bit reckless and thrill seekers. And it, it doesn't feel to me that you've ever been a thrill seeker, but you are somehow able to compartmentalize and almost shut away the jeopardy of what you did for a living um, and still deliver at the highest level. Have you ever taken time now, particularly since, you know, you retired back in what, 73? You were, you were relatively young when you retired, but have you ever, had, have you ever sort of self-analyzed your approach to the sport? I think, uh, I think the determination issue to succeed, whether it was in my shooting, because I was no good at school and that was your, that was your main activity was school in those days to grow up. And I failed in that. And I found something in my shooting that I could actually do well. So I put more into my shooting almost than I did into my racing because it was my first experience of competition, proper competition. There was no competition at school. Uh, I played football quite well at school, but that, that was no, it's the classroom. So I think in, in things like that, when I went motor racing, I thought, oh gosh, that's a big thing to do that. So therefore I've got to try harder. And I recognized that I needed the best team and the best mechanics. So I never drove, hardly ever did I drive anything but the best packages. 
a courier course, a Scottish team, when I started to drive for them, they had already had a huge success. They had won Le Mans twice as private entrance. So their mechanics were really good. So I went in there and was looked after by what I thought some of the best mechanics in the world. So therefore I could get a car that I could have total confidence in. And you know, I didn't have any wheels fall off because they were the best guys. Uh, and David Murray, who was le patron of the Curia course, he only, he had a Cooper Monaco. That was like, it was built like the Eiffel Tower, that thing. It was, you know, it was sort of stood for years. I wrote it off. Um, but but it, 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 what I mean is that when I got into that car, I was driving a real good car, so I had to raise my game, so to speak. And I think going back to the same what I said, I was desperate to win and, uh, and put more into it maybe. And, and, I, and, and because I was winning, I therefore kept, you know, I drove for uh, uh, checkered flag racing in, in Lotus Elands. But that meant I was racing against the, the Ron Harris Lotus Elands with Jim Clark and Peter Arundel. So I had to be as fast as them. So in each of the carriage, you know, they were Formula One drivers. I was a little sports car driver. But to be racing against somebody like Jim Clark or, or, or any of the other drivers we, we were there at that time, it, it drives you. But if you're choosing the best teams with the best cars, I drove for John Coombs. He was one of the great entrants. Like Sterling Moss wanted to, to be with Rob Walker. These kind of alignments help you because they always have the best people behind them, the mechanics usually. Ken Tyrrell, nobody, no better example than that. Three of the mechanics come to this room that I'm in now almost every year. They, I would not be here today if I wasn't for them. I didn't have wheels to fall off. So I, that I, my gave cars you were just better repair. So that gave you a confidence to compete. That gave you a confidence to push yourself. But you've already told us that Helen counted 57 deaths of friends of yours. So you can't, um, you can't have felt impervious to that threat. So how did you reconcile those two elements of your life? The fact that you were acutely aware of the danger, but you were still able to race. Uh, I seldom overdrove. Um, most people overdrive. I learned not to overdrive from Jim Clark, who I think was the second best racing driver ever in the world. I think Juan Manuel Fangio was the best, and I think Jim Clark was second best, ahead of Schumacher, ahead of Senna or Prost, or Prost and Senna in my case, I think. Um, and I learned so much from him and I saw how gentle he was with a car and how he coaxed a car into doing things rather than bullying a car to do it. And a lot of the drivers bully cars and cars don't like it. Yeah. Uh, cars are like humans. If you treat them nicely, uh, I sometimes make the opinion of respectfully to do with the young ladies. If you treat them nicely, they much prefer it. Um, and, and a racing car is exactly the same. I learned 
that if you're doing 150 mil an hour, 180 mil an hour, and you're breaking a hammer at some fancy corner, you, 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 to begin with, when you're a racing, there was three parts of the corner, the braking, the apex, and the exit. I learned there was eight parts of the corner. Because when you get towards the corner, the first thing you do is take off your gas pedal. The car immediately gets upset. So take your gas pedal off gently, even at that speed. In a millisecond, it can be done gently rather than just taking it off. The same with the brake. The same with the gear shift, the same with the steering wheel, and the same with the exit. So instead of having three things, you get eight things. And I learned to do that. And eight things out of one corner. Now, there's usually 14 to 16 corners per lap. So to learn that was what I did. But I was following somebody who I thought and still believe was one of the greatest drivers that's ever lived. You know, I never raced against Sterling Moss, but I did against Jim Clark, I did against a whole lot of other people. And for me, I learned so much coming through the ranks because I was going with Ecuria course, that was a good team. And then I got to be with Ken Tyrrell in Formula 3. And then I got to BRM with Graham Hill. And then I got to the Matra and then we won world championships. So. It was because I was always, I was lucky enough to choose the best people to go to bed with. And let's talk a bit more about Jim Clark, because you were actually flatmates, weren't you? And yeah, we had, yeah. You must have had a few John, there was a racing driver called John Whitmore, who was a great guy. He was from an aristocratic family. And anyway, he had, a, he, had he drove Cortina's really well and lots of other things, GT40s. But he was, he was a rich young man. He had a lovely apartment um, just off Hyde Park. Um, and we called it the Scottish Embassy because he <laughs> gave it to us to, for Jimmy and I to be whenever we were in London or England. We, we stayed at, at, you know, at the, uh, the Scottish Embassy. Um, and of course, Jimmy was never married. And of course, he had a long line of girlfriends. You girls try to take advantage of racing drivers all the time. And, uh, Do not include uh, me in that, okay? Not in that <laughs> list. <laughs> uh, so it was quite a busy place for a while. <laughs> Helen and I, of course, went down there a lot, and she was with me a lot. And we, Jim Clark was the, the worst possible decision maker I've ever known in my whole life. He, he, he wouldn't know which restaurant to go to or what cinema to go to and before he made up his mind they were all closed uh, but he on a track he was unbelievable but I find that was so very... interesting because cause you could you could say that about a few on the grid now I, I I won't name them but there's a couple that I've seen away from the track completely unable to make a decision and yet visor goes down and they go for gaps that don't even exist what is that about is it like an alter ego when the wireless go, when the, 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 the uh, visor goes down, the lights go out, uh, and they become different people. You know, there's no emotion. You you do things in a different way. I learned to remove emotion, for example, um, when driving a racing car. And you know, I I think I don't know what it is, but uh, that's the way it was. And 
you know, Jim Clark was a very indecisive man. Uh, I mean, really, uh, I mean, he never got married and he had a very long time girlfriend and he had a few other young ladies who, of course, tried to take advantage of him. Um, so, so therefore, it was, uh, it, they were happy days. <laughs> There's some joy in indecision, maybe. I don't know. In the pink and bows, really want to help during this lockdown. Now, whether we can or not is another question, but we can try and we're going to do that by giving away some more Bose noise cancelling headphones. To win them, just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same and you never know those headphones could be yours. Good luck. Stay safe and stay connected. Um, so let's, let's just talk about your, about your career and, and the, the various highs and lows that you had to deal with. Um, you did retire at 34, which does seem, by today's standards, very young. I mean, Seb, we, he may even retire now at 32. Um, who knows, he may take a sabbatical. Was there ever a chance that you would come back to the sport after retirement? Never. I n I've never missed it one day. Uh, I got chances to go several times uh, to go back into racing for considerably more money than I'd ever seen as a racing driver. But it never appealed to me at all. I, I, I was living a, a, a really exciting life because I was one of the lucky ones that came in at a time when the commercial side of motor racing really come in big time. So motor racing is probably on a different scale than almost any other sport because of the commercialization on it. It's not just cars, it's fuel and oil companies, it's tire and rubber companies, electronic companies. Nowadays, you know, all sorts of other high technology things. And it's colorful, glamorous and exciting to that company. So the chairman and the CEO all have to come to a Grand Prix or a main race. And so oh, you're not going without me, says the wife, because she likes the glamour, the colour and the excitement and the danger to some extent. It's, a, it's an atmosphere. And when you're mi mixing with these people, as long as you behave yourself, you drive well, you dress appropriately and you behave yourself again, you get invited back. So whether in my case, because King Hussein of Jordan was a mammoth enthusiast of motorsport and sort of adopted me and came to so many races with me. And I went to Jordan and he would send a golf stream for me way back in these days to go to Jordan with Helen. And he would come to races and come to our home. This home here, I built two, helipads because of King Hussein because when he came it was at the time of the first um, Middle Eastern war and the, the government wouldn't allow him to fly his helicopter without a, a, a support vehicle behind him and it was a gunship and I had to buy uh, put two you know so King Hussein getting to be with a man like that I learned so much with like from him or the chairman of British Airways, Lord King at that time, giant of a man. 
So you're mixing with the Henry Fords or the King Husseins or, or, or lots of other people similar. And you're learning so much because of your sport. They're intoxicated by your sport. And you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, I have to wake up here. I've got King Hussein beside me or, 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 or the Queen of, of Jordan. Uh, so that's why racing drivers are lucky. You don't get a football player as often getting that opportunity or anybody, even a cyclist or anybody else. Motor racing from that point of view is an enormous magnet. And if you service it correctly, you get access to things that you would otherwise never get. And that's where I got all the pleasure and excitement and color of our life, never mind financial. Um, so therefore I had long-term relationships now with Heineken, for example, and still with Rolex and still 51 years with Moet and Chandon because I was the first to spray champagne in Formula One. And you were the very first. I was the first. French Grand Prix, 1969. Uh, the Count Frederick Chandon was at the race, and I think it was Mitterrand who presented the trophy, and he said, oh, you should, we should uh, open the champagne and put the champagne so you can celebrate your victory. And they had left the bottle, a double magnum of champagne, on the podium from before the beginning of the race. And it was like, you know, it was a hot, hot day. When I undid the cork, the thing went, it must have gone 50 feet in the air. So I put my fingers on it, to Scotsman, to save the champagne. And of course the champagne went further. And Mitterrand got soaked, so did Fred Chandon and everybody else. And Chandon said to me after, oh, Jackie, you've got to do this for every Grand Prix. I'll give you a contract. In 1966. No, no, 69. French Grand Prix. Nine. Clement Ferrand. And I'm still, I, I was on the board of Morton Chandon here in the United Kingdom for uh, 25 years. Um, and I'm still, I still have a relationship. So these relationships come You've got to service them correctly, and and it doesn't. You know, there's you, there's no free lunches. You've got to work at what you do, and you've got to deliver. So whether it's a racing car or whether it's one of the commercial relationships of a sponsorship, uh, and when that started, you know, Philip Morris. I mean, you know, all the top drivers drove for Philip Morris. I never did. But that's where the money was. And, you know, the racing drivers have a, a better opportunity of making it after. I think Vettel could be very successful because he's very well spoken. He speaks languages, something I can't do. Um, and he's a very charming young man. And he's been world champion a few times. And I, I think he can do well. And I think Lewis will finish driving and he'll go into music or, or fashion or entertainment or something and he'll be hugely successful because he'll 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 not want to lose yeah you know yeah. he's been he's been winning up here what does he do he doesn't want to start losing when he retires so he'll try harder and he'll do better than everybody else i, I mean it's 
I love that champagne story because you would think in that moment they might say, what are you doing? You're wasting the champagne. But I loved his foresight that actually this was, you know, a moment to be captured. Yeah, Just I can't say it was my everything. idea. <laughs> it wasn't my idea, it was his. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, idea. yeah, yeah. But it was your thriftiness trying to keep the champagne in, you see? <laughs> well, that's, that's Scottish. The great Scott, again, the great Scott strikes again. Brilliant. I've heard you talk before about this kaleidoscope of life. And, you know, it really strikes me that whenever I've seen you at race circuits and, and you relentless in your travel and your networking and you're talking to people, but that seems to make you thrive, that you seem to feed off that. You seem to enjoy that. Even all these years after your retirement, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's wonderful to see you give so much to the sport and also get so much from it as well. Yeah, it, it, because I'm with blue chip companies. And, yeah. and therefore, when I go to a Grand Prix and, I'm, you know, with Rolex and Heineken, for example, I'm dealing with senior management all the time and, and they're global people. I think that's why I say it, Formula One attracts people of that kind. Uh, and it's... It, it, it's and by the way, you know, we can take them down to the garage and we, we can take them sometimes other places that I can take them that maybe some other people can't. But they can't get into the changing room at Wimbledon. And nor you know? if you want to, it might be a bit smelly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Formula One's very open. It's definitely got a mystique about it, though. It's, you know, and it must be something to do with the jeopardy. That, that edge to the atmosphere that other sports probably can't quite create in the same way? Well, some of it's the speed. Yeah. Some of it's the noise. Some of it's the danger. Nobody likes to see anybody die. No. But don't mind seeing a few accidents. That's very spectacular and that, that's very magnetic. Um, I, I think that's part of it. Speed. You know, people who are traveling at over 200 miles an hour, you think, wow, this is unbelievable. And then we can take those people down and actually meet the, the guests, meet those same people who have just come from doing 200 miles an hour sort of thing. And that's very intoxicating. Mm. I mean, when I met Muhammad Ali for the first time, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm talking to Muhammad Ali. Uh, it was... Uh, so therefore, if they talk to Lewis today, or if they talk to anybody, all the top line drivers, they're intoxicated by their success, by their lifestyle, by the, ex I mean, because everybody's pushing and shoving to get, not autographs today, selfies. Uh, for every one autograph I will do at a Grand Prix, I'll do 10 selfies. Uh, so anyway, people like that. And that's why Formula One is different. Because, you know, the greatest tennis player in the world, Roger Federer, another Rolex man, by the way, um, you know, he comes from the dressing room and he goes on to the court. And on the, everybody will applaud him. And when he comes off the court, win or lose, they'll be wanting them to sign tennis balls or autographs and so forth. And then he goes into the dressing room and they don't see him again. Mm. The golfers, the same thing. There's no contact. In Formula One, somehow or other, think of Monza, think of Brazil, think of Argentina, think of, no, so much today in Argentina, but Mexico. 
the crowd come on just to see the podium, but there's 500,000 people almost in Monza and so forth. And they're all absolutely desperately just to want to see their winner or their podium finisher or one of their team principals. So there's the excitement, somehow or other, the chemistry in Formula One is complete. I mean, I've done a lot of NASCAR races and I've done Indianapolis as a commentator as well as a driver. It's nothing like Formula One, the actual passion. And, and Italy was where it started, that real hot passion. Now the Brazilians are like it. Now the, when we go to Mexico, it's terrific. And every country, Britain takes longer to get everybody on front of the podium than these other countries. The passion, the British are a little more reserved. The Italians aren't. Let's bring it up to today because I totally agree that that enthusiasm and passion is infectious. Uh, you, it is intoxicating. It's all the words that you describe it as. Um, let's talk about your view of the current grid and what would have been uh, this weekend, the Monaco Grand Prix, a magical place. Uh, first of all, just tell us why it is such a special one to win. First of all, it's the, I think it's the jewel in the crown of all of the races we go to. It's been there for 90 years, Monaco, as a, a place of motorsport. Um, all the great drivers have won there. The Principality, Prince Rainey and then the Princess Grace, Her Serene Highness, actually lit that place up. Everybody's close to the race. You're right up against it. The noise, the smell, the whole thing is so magical. Uh, you know, in my day, um, the night before the Grand Prix, Saturday night, we would all, all the Grand Prix drivers would be, or maybe not every one of them, but nearly every one of them, would be invited to the palace for a black tie dinner. We all went. And in my life, because I won there twice or four times, um, I would sit beside Princess Grace, or I'd be sitting beside David Niven, or I'd be sitting beside Frank Sinatra, or I'd be sitting with Cary Grant. Or, because she was a magnetic woman, and the principality was a magnetic destination. And we would all do it, and we would excuse ourselves at half past 11 at night or something to go back to sleep for the day, next day's race. That doesn't happen anymore. They have a cocktail party, but it's not black tie and it's not in the palace, it's in the courtyard of the palace. And most of the people don't have a tie on. There's no formality left. That formality was a magical part of their serene highnesses. Now that sort of thing was happening in Spain, the king of Spain still ex-King of Spain now, comes to still a lot of races. And he, I met him before he was king. He came to all of the Spanish Grand Prix and some others, including Monaco. When somebody like that comes along, that's part of Formula One. It's exciting, it's glamorous, and it's, it's real. And the swinging 60s and 70s is where I lived. I mean, I met the Beatles there. I met the Rolling Stones there for the first time. I met Peter Sellers there. I meet, well, I say Cary Grant, Elizabeth Taylor. I brought her to the race one year. That period 
was so colorful, glamorous, and exciting. That's where Monaco was the capital. The British Grand Prix, the history is magnificent. The first ever Grand Prix was held at Silverstone. It should also always be at Silverstone. Because you've got to recognize history. You've got to recognize achievement. And Monaco has done it for longer than anybody else. And, you know, there are special racetracks like the old Nürburgring and things like that. But that's gone because it became unacceptably dangerous. But Monaco's still there. And, and if you win the race, I mean, even the Formula One race. When I won the Formula One race, first time I'd ever raced outside of the country, I won it for Ken Tillon, the wee Cooper thing. And on the Sunday, Ken Tillon told me before we went, you've got to bring your black tie. So I had to have a black tie, a dinner jacket. I won the Formula Three race. I'm sitting on the left-hand side of Princess Grace on Sunday night. Helen's sitting on the right-hand side of, of, of Prince Rainey and Betty Hill and Graham Hill on the left hand of what the, the right protocol. So the Formula One driver and his wife and the Formula Three driver and his wife are sitting at the top table with a thousand people in the room. Now, that was magic for a wee man like me from Dumbarton <laughs> to be sitting beside one of the most beautiful women in the world. And, you know, from that, it's I brought Sean Connery to the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, Roman Polanski came with me when he made his film on, on me and there. So why did they go to Monte Carlo? Because it was the most glamorous, the most colorful and the most exciting, the Mediterranean. Nearchos would come up to the pits. I would get him tickets for the pits and he would come and he wanted to sit in my car and he wanted to start the engine. Well, Ken Tittle did all of that. And that's the color. That's what makes the thing bigger. And today, when I go to the British Grand Prix, the Duke of Kent is the honorary president of the British Racing Drivers Club, the BRDC. I always take him to the pits and the paddock to meet the drivers and he's thrilled to meet them and they're usually thrilled to meet him and I, I, I don't know whether it's the same in the Tour de France I don't know if it's the same in other things but not too many people get into the the locker room of Manchester City you know it just doesn't happen in the same way Formula One's amazing for that mm. Some very special memories there. And as you say, you've not done bad for a, a wee dyslexic boy from Dumbarton. You must pinch yourself <laughs> even now. No, it's, it's been a wonderful trip. I mean, uh, I'm as happy as a lark. Um, um, you know, I've got lovely houses and things like that. Um, the sport has been enormously kind to me. And luckily the companies that I... I had associations with have kept me and they're all blue chip. So therefore you still meet the best people and you still go to the best places. And it's, um, it's been a great trip. Well, it's a trip that is far from over. And so Jackie, the sport has given you a lot, but I can say as a young fan and now working in the sport, still a fan, 
that you continue to give Formula One so very much of yourself, which is invaluable. So on behalf of all the fans, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure thank I can you. speak on behalf of everyone. Uh, listen, what a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, we've missed you. We've missed Formula One. Hopefully we can get back racing soon and hopefully we'll see you at a racetrack very, very soon indeed. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I see today in the mail, by the way, um, that they're being very negative about the Grand Prix happening in Silverstone. I know, I saw that as well. Yeah. I hope that doesn't happen. That, that yeah. should not be allowed. You know, you can't... That's why you've got to have quality and you've got to have integrity and you've got to have... You've got to remember history as well. Yeah. So, you know, it would be a mistake. It would, it would, in any case, be sad to have no spectators there. Mm. But not to have a British Grand Prix when you consider that Britain started Formula One Grand Prix racing. It was the first time ever that there was a World Championship Formula One race. And it's had such a strong history with tremendous attendances always. Uh, to lose that, I think, would be a disaster for motorsport. I think if they're not careful, that could be the beginning of not such a good time. Mm. Well, fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Let's hope it um, gets back onto the camera. Oh, there you are. Your there husband's you are. still putting up with you? Only just. Yeah, well, I would have expected that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. And same Take to care. you. Bye-bye. Bye. All the best. Bye. Thank you so much, Sir Jackie. Great to see your face and hear your voice again. Loved his story about the champagne on the podium in France, 1969. And really interested to hear his thoughts on dyslexia. Brilliantly inspiring that it was dyslexia that really pushed him to work so much harder and make a real success of his life. Okay, loads more great guests coming up on In The Pink. Three very different stories on the way. Uh, Three people very different lives but very strong lessons learned and to be shared great advice from first up Michelle Moan the hugely successful Scottish businesswoman who is now in the House of Lords we've got Mark Billingham from SAS Who Dares Wins he had a tough childhood in and out of gangs and then found his way and uh, is now hugely successful in television but also charity having had a distinguished career in the SAS and we've got Sir Chris Hoy the Olympic legend and he has got some great advice that can genuinely be applied to anyone now who may be struggling in lockdown but also with their lives generally so well worth a listen and uh, yeah just really enjoy talking to them all so they are on the way very soon. Don't forget, you can still win the Bose Noise Cancelling Headphones. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, invite a friend, tag a friend in on Instagram and add the hashtag Bose. Tell us who else you want us to talk to on the podcast. And we will be back very soon for more on This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. 
This Is Not a Drake Podcast is a new series from CBC Podcasts that uses seminal moments in Drake's career to explore the history and evolution of hip-hop, R&B, and black culture and unpacks how rap is evolving with shifts in gender dynamics. It's also about the rapper who's blurred genres and dominated the world stage and the larger hip-hop movement that made him. You can subscribe to This Is Not a Drake Podcast on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.